This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, a COVID-19 edition of an Easter weekend. The great news is the Easter bunny has been declared an essential service. Does it get any better than that? Enjoy your Easter weekend of self-isolation. We'll see you out the other side. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Here's something fascinating. Cases uh, doubling every five days, which sounds like a lot, but it was doubling, I understand, in the province uh, every three days, and now that's kind of settling down a little bit. Uh, So there is room for optimism there. The first Ontario Centre going to turn into a shelter to help fight the pandemic. To talk more about all of this, uh, Paul Johnson is with us, Director of our Emergency Operations Centre, City of Hamilton, and he's with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, great to be joining you. What is the topic of discussion around the Emergency Operations Centre today? So really, we are looking at how we're going to deal with, uh, you know, the rising number of cases and this next phase where we're going to go through this rise and this peak. And then we've got to talk about, of course, what what does life look like after uh, we start to go through these these first couple of months. And, you know, to do some of that, we've been very uh, consciously focusing on areas where we know outbreaks are more uh, possible because of the setting that people live in and more probable because of uh, some of the vulnerabilities. And you saw us take some action and from a homelessness perspective, we're going to provide some relief uh, to the numbers that are in our current, uh, particularly the men's shelter system, uh, by opening an additional 50-bed shelter that will run out of the first Ontario centre. Uh, Good Shepherd Centres is going to to operate it. Uh, can't thank them enough for stepping up and taking that on. And uh, this allows us to do two things. Uh, one is it allows us to have a few extra spaces, and it allows us in the three other men's shelters that currently exist at Salvation Army, Good Shepherd, and Mission uh, Services. We, it allows us to take their numbers down so that we can increase the social distancing. These congregate settings are the places where uh, we we have a great deal of of concern because in congregate settings there's way more opportunity for people to be touching common surfaces uh, to be too close to one another and if you do get a positive case uh, they move rather quickly and that's what you see in retirement homes and long-term care facilities and our homeless shelters are are not a lot different so taking action there and working really with uh, all of these congregate settings to make sure that they're prepared for what's going to come over the next uh, the next few weeks uh, our numbers in Hamilton are, are good. I heard you mention off the top that our doubling rate is is behind where some of this stuff is happening um, in a in a worse way, and that's good news. It means the actions we're taking are are helping, but they are still going up, and mm-hmm. uh, we still know that there is is much more that's going to 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 happen over these coming weeks. The last thing I'll say is that. Uh, there's been uh, announcements by the province that more testing is going to take place. And so obviously public health is working today to, to look at ways that we can test more people because the capacity for those tests to be completed provincially uh, are increasing as well. 
Uh, getting back to the first Ontario uh, center, so that's going to be used largely or wholly, or wholly rather, for uh, homeless as an expansion of the existing shelter system for the purposes of just providing space between between each person. It is, and it's actually for homeless men. Uh, so we've done some additional pieces for families and women uh, utilizing hotel spaces. Uh, in those cases. So we've expanded capacity across our system, uh, including hotels for men, but this was seen as a way of of helping that our existing men's shelters to continue to operate, but operate at a lower capacity. And we know as we go through the month, generally speaking, more people enter into homeless shelters as the month goes on. Uh, so we need to be prepared for the natural rise that uh, in homelessness that occurs on, on a monthly basis, but also make sure that we're not asking shelters to be at, at 85, 90, 95, or even 100% capacity. That just does not allow for the social distancing that we need particularly with a population um, that, that is also vulnerable from some other health issues. So uh, we thought it was time to move on that. This will get up and operational over the weekend. So we'll be able to, to move people in. And as I say, we're in the early part of the month, so our numbers are stable within the three men's centers now. Uh, this will allow us to deal with a bit of that surge that, that's coming our way. And this will be an operation, uh, you know, for as long as we need it to be, uh, to allow for that that social distancing to be in place. So we hopefully it's only a couple of months and we can go back. But you know, with this thing, the more I read and the more we see uh, information coming out, we're not entirely sure where this is is going to go and how we're going to deal with these very, uh, you know, challenging environments. And I don't call them challenging because uh, they're they're bad. They're challenging from a design perspective when you put a lot of people in the same space using the same amenities uh, with a virus of this type that is is very contagious when it's uh, when it when you touch and then touch your face uh, this thing can move fairly quickly and we need to make sure in places like our emergency shelters we're taking as many precautions as we can how many beds will be in first ontario center and what is the capacity do you have room for more if needed uh, so we're going with 50 as a beginning point. We're trying to spread this out so that if uh, there was an outbreak, we could, uh, you know, institute good infection control measures and, and uh, contain it. So it'll be 50 at this point. I mean, obviously, First Ontario is a ginormous building, so we would be able to expand capacity in other zones within that building. We would just need to make sure that there was not a, a commingling of populations in terms of use of washrooms and other pieces. But one of the reasons we... Uh, we've we've taken on the the arena as a as a really as a contingency around homelessness is its size and, and also some of the infrastructure in it lots of washrooms access to laundry uh, those types of things so it made sense from our perspective rather than going rec center by rec center by rec center and not always having the amenities we need uh, this arena offers us something to get started on and then if we have to go to other facilities we will but we would have some expansion capacity uh, without without at all. Uh, getting people too close. I mean, everybody knows the size of our of our large arena in downtown Hamilton, and with only 50 people in it, uh, we're going to be able to keep the space. And then we're going to have to make sure that again, you know, people are not eating together. That washrooms are cleaned regularly. We'll have all those things in place. And we're also going to be testing a, a lot more in our homeless shelters uh, in in order to make sure that we're on top of that. And then if we do see signs or symptoms of COVID, we do have places in place that will isolate individuals. And if the tests come back positive, we also have an isolation shelter where COVID-19 positive individuals would be uh, would be sheltered until uh, they, they recover. So 
a number of things in place, uh, really as good as we can get to, recognizing that we have to use congregate settings. Uh, and so we're trying our best to make sure that we've got en- enough things in place. That It's a great idea, and uh, kudos to uh, your crew and, and Good Shepherd for making that happen. Uh, I want to touch on, Paul, like many have, have said that this is a senior's uh, illness, and we've certainly seen that in the fatality rate of it. However, there are young people in Hamilton who have this, are there not? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the case breakdown is, is not, uh, you know, 98% in one area and 2% in another. Uh, we are finding that it is different in different uh, categories. And Dr. Richardson has been clear to say, you know, for, for most people, uh, this is something that, uh, that will knock you down a little bit, but you will recover from without a whole lot of, of uh, issues and not a lot of need for any additional supports from a healthcare perspective. It's not as though 80 or 90% of people need to be hospitalized to get this. So recovery is possible uh, for most of us in, in, in a number of days, and it, it will hit us, but it won't hit us that hard. But of course, what is, is known is that when you age and, and sort of the elderly population or populations where there are significant underlying medical issues, that those are the, the areas where we are, are deeply concerned because at that stage, uh, a respiratory virus like this can take hold and, and have some really dire consequences. So you are quite right that this is, um, this is across all uh, age ranges and, and there is, there is almost no immunity to this naturally. So, in some ways, we're all uh, susceptible to this, obviously. But I will say that our particular uh, focus is on vulnerable populations where we know the outcomes can be significantly more challenging, including uh, up to and including death. But as you've seen around the world, across this country and around North America in particular, lots of stories of of uh, relatively healthy younger individuals really getting knocked out by this thing and some requiring, um, you know, some hospitalization out of it. So I, I think it's a good reminder that there isn't a segment of the population that uh, that is immune and more so even for those who say, well, geez, a mild whatever, I, I can handle that. It's what you could bring to someone else who can't handle it. So whereas for, you know, we'll use me as an example, if, if I might just be out for three or four days and feeling rather grim, me, though, being out and about and connecting with somebody and potentially infecting someone else who's immunocompromised, that could be a very deadly outcome for them. And that's really why we're asking people to do all of the things we're doing, to distance, to stay at home and all the rest. Um, we know for most this is going to be, if they do get it, uh, a fairly mild uh, uh, illness. But the reality is for those who get it, who it's very difficult for or leading up to death, we don't want to spread that. So that's why we're asking everybody to take these measures, which I know are a pain in the bum, but uh, they are the things we need to do to uh, stop the spread to those vulnerable populations. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of the curve here, as as we've been saying, um, but I do want to sort of, uh, I guess, point to the fact that there is light at the end of this tunnel, but I do not want people to lighten up on what they're doing over this holiday weekend uh, from the conversation we're about to have. But um, we, we've heard the Prime Minister say earlier this morning, uh, peaking sometime late, uh, late spring, early summer. But as you get down the backside of that curve, it's not like you can flip a switch and, and open the barn door and let everybody out. This social distancing is going to have to happen even as we go down the backside of that 
that curb. Are there plans in place, and is this part of the emergency operations centers that we've seen all over the place? Is this part of the next phase of this discussion is how do we come out of this in such a way that we don't find ourselves back in it? Now, you didn't hack into WebEx this morning and join our EOC <laughs> conversation, did you? Because no, it, I it didn't. Is very, it is very funny, uh, although it's always on our mind. Today, we actually put down that within the next week or so, we're going to get together some people that are actually researching and looking at this together with our EOC to start to get our head around um, what does uh, the other side of this mean. And to your point, um, the one thing I can be pretty assured of right now is that whatever the date is, it's not a flick of switch. Uh, we don't just go back to business as usual and life as normal. I, I find almost, I don't find anything in, in literature or emerging research or conversations with health professionals that says this is simply going to be an open the door and welcome back to life a moment. It will be some phased element to this. So we have to start to think that, about that. And, and from an EOC perspective, absolutely. Uh, we do know that we can't stay in this state forever. So we'll have to start to do some of those things in concert with health information. So we're going to be looking at some of that research. And, and I think in the next couple of weeks, uh, that will become much more of the conversation that we need to have as a community is what does that look like? And it's, you know, and I, I don't have any idea what that is right now. I just know that, um, you know, we're going to be in and out of this, I think, for, for quite some time. Uh, the most sig significant of it was to stop an overwhelming of our healthcare system. And, you know, we don't know what the future holds entirely, but I can tell you that listening last night to Dr. Richardson speak at our town hall, um, you know, she's saying there's evidence that what we're doing is working. So let's keep on that. And then we'll have to just see what we relax a little bit in order to get on with life and get the economy back moving a little bit. But uh, absolutely, it's part of our conversation. Right now, we're still dealing with a number of crises. We, we you know, you've seen long-term care facilities and retirement homes get into challenges with staffing and how they're viable. We do have a homelessness uh, issue that we are dealing with. So there's still a number of emerging issues. But I would say in the next couple of weeks, we're going to turn much more of our attention to what does May, June, July look like as we as we start to move um, move beyond the initial crisis point of this pandemic. Paul Johnson has been with us, director of our Emergency Operations Center for the city of Hamilton, giving us an update as we head into an Easter weekend and uh, the conversion of First Ontario Center uh, into helping uh, those who need shelter. Paul, thank you so much for the time and insight. Keep up the great work and thank everybody who's doing such a great job there. I will. And thank you for keeping uh, it up, uh, letting the public know what's happening. It's really important that we continue to put out good information. And the work that you're doing is critically important to this as well. So thank you. Thank you, Paul. Good luck. Uh, some bad news coming out today in regard to employment numbers and in regard to modeling. The uh, federal government have released their uh, models and, and, and how bad this can get their projections. And uh, as well, we've gotten some some jobless rates uh, sourced to about 7.8% at this point. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business prof uh, professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, I hope you're doing well. Thanks for the uh -oh. time. Much appreciated. Uh-oh. <laughs> Are you there? I was here. Right, can you hear here. me, Marvin? Okay. How you doing, Marvin? I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine, thank you. We, we got our wires crossed there for a second. 
Oh, that's okay. So uh, is this, now talking about these latest numbers, 7.8%, obviously prior to this, uh, we were doing gangbusters, I think. Uh, is it the loss of jobs or the rate at which these jobs have been lost that is so staggering? So, Scott, I'm going to answer your question, but if you don't mind, just for a second, I want to piggyback with what you just talked about with the family birthday. On Go for it. On Wednesday, the Premier of Ontario issued an order that said the Easter Bunny was an essential service and should be delivering this weekend regardless. And on the yes. same day, the Premier of Quebec, when asked by a child if the uh, Tooth Fairy was an essential service, the Premier of Quebec confirmed that it was and that the Tooth Fairy should be delivering if anyone loses a tooth. And I mentioned both of those because no matter what happens during this COVID crisis, we have to stay in touch with our humanity. This is an Easter weekend. If there are family traditions, find a way to keep them going in some way without violating social distancing. It's just so important that we retain our humanity through all of this. Well said, well said. Uh, now, the, the rate of which, yeah, the rate of which they're increasing yeah. or the numbers? Well, to me, it's neither of them. This report today is, in essence, a false report. Uh, the data is gathered the week of March 15th, and then it's reported on. It takes them a few weeks to process it, and they report it in the first week of April. Well, the situation has already changed so much that this data is already out of date. Yes, I know the, the rate jumped up to 7.8%, but that's not what our unemployment is now. It's probably getting closer to 12%, might even cap out at 15% maximum. Um, we've mentioned a million people seem to be unemployed. That's not correct. We now know the number is getting closer to 2.5 million. But all of this because of our response to a medical crisis, not because of uh, anything economic underneath this. And so these are the worst numbers in the 40 years we've been tracking them like this. You'd probably have to go back to the Great Depression to see these kinds of numbers. But the big difference was back then it was caused by an economic collapse. This is being caused by government policy. We, we have declared businesses non-essential and we've shuttered them. We threw people out of work. This is actually government policy, mm. and, and thus it, it doesn't exactly bother me or shock me. But uh, if you are shocked by these numbers, wait until you see a month from now when we get the data for April. It's going to be much worse. 7.8% will look good in comparison to what we're going to have in a month. Uh, everybody wants to know when this is this will end, and of course, nobody has that answer. Uh, we're hearing that, that we're through the, the the peak right now and into the next couple of weeks by late spring, early summer. Uh, we're going to see the downturn of this wave. But just because we see we're on the backside of a curve, which we're not yet, but once we do get to the backside of that curve, it's not a case of just flipping open the barn doors and flipping the switch again. This is going to be have to be a gradual uh, increase, is it not? Our businesses, our government, and it sounds like they are, these questions are being asked today, about a rollout plan, how you slowly restart all of this. Yeah. And part of that, Scott, is because we've spent a couple of weeks in a non-normal situation and we want it to end. I, I again need to tell people it's not two weeks and then we flip the switch. It may not even be eight weeks and we flip the switch. We actually have a live laboratory that we're studying on this, and that's called Wuhan, China. After 11 weeks of severe lockdown this week, 
China began to lift many of the social distancing rules and began to get life going back to normal. In other words, trains were departing train stations, restaurants were reopening, stores were reopening, movie theaters were reopening. It took 11 weeks. Now, we, the rest of the world, are watching this because if they have opened the doors too quickly, we might see a second wave start up, and nobody wants a second wave, excuse me, and a second round of these closures. So this is the sweet spot. How long do you have to do this? It may turn out that in the case of Wuhan, they didn't have to go 11 weeks. Maybe it could just be 10 weeks. Maybe it could be nine. We just don't know. Now, on this other side of it, and this is there, everyone wants to talk about the other side, even though the whole hurricane hasn't moved, we may be in the eye of the hurricane, but remember there's another wall in a hurricane that's got to pass. How fast can we restart things? Well, I think smaller businesses will be able to go fairly quickly. And then the question is for the larger businesses, will they do what uh, Air Canada did on Wednesday? Air Canada announced that given this emergency wage subsidy, they were going to take all of their employees off furlough and put them back on the payroll, even though they were going to pay them to sit home and do absolutely nothing because they don't have work for the pilots, they don't have work for the flight attendants. But by putting them on the payroll, two things happen. One, of course, they still can use their benefits, but also the stress of, of being unemployed and wondering, when do I get called back? Don't worry about that. We're going to improve your mental health. We're going to add you to the payroll. Now, while Air Canada did that, and God bless them for doing that and taking that kind of leadership, most other larger businesses are saying, well, we might do that, but we need the government to pass this emergency wage subsidy legislation. As you know, just yesterday, Mr. Trudeau announced that it wasn't a 30% decline to qualify for it if you'd had a 15% decline. And those are lovely pronouncements from our prime minister, but until parliament or whatever subset of parliament actually approves a program, puts it in black and white, Nobody knows exactly what the details are. So I would think a prudent business person might be interested, might start working some numbers, but until it's actually passed and it's there in black and white, we may not be able to see this. And so, again, I told you I think the unemployment numbers are bad at this moment, but they might get better if more companies follow what Air Canada did, but they're waiting to see the legislation. It's not getting passed tomorrow. We're on, obviously, Good Friday Hopefully sometime next week, Parliament will be recalled to get this legislation passed. And then hopefully by the middle of April, maybe by the you know, third week, the 20th of April, somewhere in there, we might see some bigger companies follow Air Canada's leads. And that will be another little a candle to light as we try to restart things. One of those candles slowly getting the people that are unemployed back to work, slowly reopening what we've closed, that's one discussion, Marvin. What about those of us that are fortunate and blessed enough to still be working but doing it remotely? Will working remotely be the last thing that triggers in all of this? No, I actually think uh, when when we start to say that social distancing is no longer required, then we can go back to our places of employment uh, fairly quickly. And, and so what does that mean? You know, assuming maybe we can get back to some kind of normal by the end of May, I think much of this is going to be in the rearview mirror by the time we get to Christmas time. 
Now, that's easy for me to say. Uh, my crystal ball is no clearer than yours. We've never tried to shut down an economy and then restart it on the other side. And just like there are unanticipated issues shutting things down, I'm sure there will be some un- in unanticipated issues as we try to turn it back on. But clever people are working very hard. And I think this is the level of cooperation I am seeing between the provinces and the federal government is almost unheard of in modern history. Usually they're sniping at each other behind rocks, and instead they're embracing each other and working hand in glove. It's wonderful to see. It is. Well said. Marvin Ryder with us, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time, and try to have a somewhat normal weekend. I will do that. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, there's chatter that insurance insurers, people that provide the insurance for your cars and such, uh, are talking about reducing rates because nobody is on the road. To talk more about all of this, Matthew Turek is with us, president of CAA Insurance and on the line with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. So where is the insurance industry on COVID-19? There's rumors floating around that some are starting to offer some sort of rebate rebate or discount. What can you tell us? Absolutely. I, I, well, I can't talk about the entire industry or every company. Uh, every company is doing something a little bit different. CA Insurance is very pleased to announce that it's offering a 10% rate reduction for both home and auto insurance policies. Uh, it's important for our customers to seek out all options, contact us, talk to your agent or broker, and really look at how you can get some relief uh, for your cost of insurance while making sure you have the protection. Now, do is it up to the customer to find out all of this? And I know you're not right, you're speaking for all the insurance agencies, just CAA. But was this something that would happen automatically across the board, or is this something that the client has to investigate? For CA insurance customers, it'll happen automatically. So new business customers would get that when they call in for a quote. And renewing customers will have the 10% reduction automatically applied to their home and auto policy. So if if someone out there has CAA insurance and say they're in the middle of a policy right now, what do they do? Absolutely. So for those customers, we, we want them to call their agent or their broker to, to do a holistic review of their policy as well as have the 10% applied to their policy. Um, we're going to make sure that everyone gets every cost savings uh, opportunity available to them. And it's usually not just the 10% that is available to them. There's usually a, a mix of opportunities that we can pursue to help them save some money. Uh, but obviously, less cars on the road during this time. I mean, anybody who's been out and about knows wherever you are, it pretty much looks like a ghost town if, if people are following uh, the rules and such. Uh, how much have claims dropped? Do we have any numbers on that yet, or is it still too early? It's really too early to say exactly how much claims have dropped. We have seen a decrease. Everyone is doing their job at social isolating, 
uh, staying home. And definitely there's less roads and less uh, risks on the road. That's why we felt 10% reduction for both home and auto were, was important to give back to customers at this point in time. Uh, we should, I should note that the 10% is not just for a temporary period of time. It is for the life of your term of your policy. So when you do get the reduction in rates, uh, you will have that for the full year. Uh, I, I have heard, though, through poli- uh, a couple of police services that things like speeding are on the increase because there's so much more open road. Are you concerned of that? Not not yet. Um, I would say when they do see speeding incidences, uh, because there's less cars and people taking the opportunity to go faster with the open roads, it's, it's still the few number of motorists who are doing that. It, majority of us, and majority of people are staying at home. Their cars are parked. Um, they're either in the garage or the driveway or, or, you know, just sitting there on the street. And majority of us are doing our, our job or our responsibility of making sure that we self-isolate. So we want to make sure we reflect that reduced risk and make sure we give the, the reduced cost and reduced rate back to consumers. How did this all get started? Did did the insurers speak as a group and say, or has there been any discussion as a group or through an association saying, hey, we should do this? How did this all start? Well, it really starts individually. It does not, we don't uh, collate on what we're doing individually on rates. There is an association called the Insurance Bureau of Canada, which we're part of, and they, they help coordinate some of the efforts, but not rating specific. So things like not charging for non-sufficient funds or looking at not canceling customers or trying to allow for accommodations like people doing grocery deliveries or community Good Samaritan work. Uh, Absolutely. That's not something that we would normally cover, but we're going to allow for that because we think it's great when people can help their fellow citizens and really do uh, what's right for him for our society in Ontario. So, if you're a, and again, whether you're a CAA client or not, but what should what should the average consumer do with this information? Should what should they do moving forward with this? I would say the average consumer should definitely call their broker or agent. Look for all the opportunities to save some money. If that means um, reviewing your coverage, making sure that you have the right kilometers on your policy adjusting it for the new life situation that we're in, um, asking about rate changes, um, is there a rate reduction coming, um, asking about flexibility on payments if that's a, a need for you, um, but really talk to your agent and broker about what those opportunities are uh, because there, it usually is the mix of those opportunities that can really get the best savings. All right, and uh, CAA offering 10% on both uh, 10% reduction on both home and auto. Joining us has been Matthew Turak, president of CAA Insurance. Matthew, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay well. Thank you, Scott. Stay well. Stay healthy. Thank you. All right, the federal government has released uh, that data and could see 11,000 to 22,000 deaths from COVID-19. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, a faculty member in human and social sciences, health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University, and is with us now. Uh, Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Of course, happy to speak to you, Scott. 
And I hope you're doing well as we head into this uh, holiday weekend. Your thoughts, uh, Ahmad, on these numbers, these projections. We were talking about this uh, earlier on in the week. Uh, the provinces had started to release numbers, and everyone was hoping the uh, federal government would do the same. And now they have done that. Your thoughts on what we're seeing? When I look at the numbers overall, uh, well, first of all, I should probably start saying by happy birthday to your wife. Uh, on the comments, I will pass numbers, that along, Ahmad. Thank you so do. much. Please do. Uh, the numbers that what, what I think is very important to see from those numbers is that the 11,000 to 22,000 deaths in Canada are are based on stronger uh, control. So by by that we mean is that we continue to do physical distancing, we continue promoting safe hand hygiene. Uh, we continue putting all the protocols in place, we will only see at, a, at a, the worst-case scenario 22,000. Now, what's actually really, really keen to look at from those numbers is if we decide as a country to not put forward those strong measures, what would have happened? Well, what the numbers are telling us is that if we put none of this physical distancing, what we're currently doing, we would be looking at 350,000 deaths. Uh, that is what's really scary. So I think the message from those numbers is very simple, which is that continue our efforts, uh, continue promoting physical distancing, and really keep pushing this idea of safe hand hygiene and figuring out a way to live in our current reality. And, and it seems that, and again, you know, you, you listen, you watch the leaders in these press conferences, and and they're being asked questions that they just simply we, we don't have the answers to. Uh, and, and one of those main questions is when will it peak? When will it end? But as I mentioned before, bringing you on, this isn't like flicking a switch when all of a sudden, oh, we're all clear, everybody go out to the restaurant. I mean, this is going to be as gradual uh, a relaxing of these regulations as it was when they were ramping up. Absolutely. And, and you're right, right on saying that. So it's going to be very hard for us to say when we can flick that switch. But we do know as of today, there was a report published in the U.S. by some of the best experts in the world who looked into projections on how, when will we get back to normal life. And they put forward four criteria that everybody should be looking for that will give us an indication when life will come back to normal. And those include things like, number one, that the hospitals in our country will be able to safely treat all the patients requiring hospitalization. So if you go in, uh, I said this before, if you have a heart attack and you go into the hospital, you're able to get the treatment without the hospital being in this crisis standard of care. So it will be, it would feel like when you go to the hospital, you were able to get care that you need. Number two is that the country is able to test everybody who has symptoms, which is not currently the case. So anybody who has a symptoms of uh, similar to COVID-19, we're able to get them a test. And number three is that we can continue monitoring uh, confirmed cases and contacts. And then by that, we mean contact tracing and isolation. So if I have COVID-19, are they able, is the system able to identify who I've been able uh, in contact with, reach out to them, and uh, advise them to isolate? And number four is that we're able to see a sustained reduction, so a lowering in the number of cases for at least 14 days. Once those four criteria have been met, I think we will see that we'll be able to go back to normal life. And even as uh, uh, the experts are alluding to, uh, as this does come to an end and we slowly get to that point, there still could be clusters of areas sporadically throughout the country, correct? Excellent point. Yes, we will only see that uh, decrease when we have a vaccine or treatment in place, and we are way well underway in developing those. So we're really not going to get, and I'm not saying that life isn't going to get back to normal, or somewhat normal, but we're really not going to see that until 
a vaccine, which is the better part of a year from now. Correct. Absolutely. I think that we will not see uh, life back to normal. But I think that people, the general public is sort of getting accustomed. They, obviously, they're not happy about it, but they're getting accustomed to this mm-hmm. way of living. And given the fact that we'll probably be doing this for quite some time, uh, I'm not surprised if when we do say that we can go back to normal life, people will continue practicing physical distancing. And the hope is that people will continue to wash their hands and, and practice safe hygiene. Is the hug a thing of the past? Will it ever come back? Uh, yeah, I mean, an excellent question. Uh, I hope so. I definitely miss uh, receiving and giving hugs. Uh, I think that it will come back once the treatments and vaccine are in place. Uh, your thoughts on British Columbia, because we're starting to hear that they are starting to flatten their curve out a little bit. What can we learn from that? What we can learn from them is drastic measures early on are important. What we can also learn from them is there's hope for all of us. But we have to remember we're one country. Although we're divided into provinces and territories, we're still one country. And by that, I mean, it's great that BC is able to see a reduction in the numbers of being able to flatten the curve. But that must translate to the rest of the country, because in cases in one province, will eventually lead to other provinces. We're not closing our borders between provinces, right? So it doesn't, it just because one province is seeing a reduction in numbers, we want to see that across the country. Where is BC on that? I mean, they are seeing the slight downtick. By no means, they, they've said, by no means are they out of the woods. But where are they and what does it say where they are? Well, right now, BC, from what I'm looking at, uh, the number of COVID-19 deaths in British Columbia as of today was 48 total deaths. Uh, in Ontario, we're at 200. So, yes, you know, they are doing better in terms of numbers. Uh, and I think it will just take some time to see where we go from here and what we can learn from them. Uh, why lower numbers there than here? Um, we certainly know about the testing situation in Ontario, and that is, is being ramped up. But, but what, how do you explain BC's, uh, you know, considering it, did, it, did it more or less start there at that point of the country? Uh, and, and I guess they've been there earlier than what we are in the east. But, but how do you explain their lower numbers? I think I explained their lower numbers, the fact that they were uh, able to mobilize their resources much earlier from what we've seen. They were able to get their healthcare workers uh, and, and essential equipment to them faster. Uh, and also maybe they were being better at getting monitoring and conducting assessments and contact tracing. Uh, but I think those lessons that we will learn to BC won't come about now. They will come out in the near future. So where we are now and heading into this weekend, what do you want Ontarians to know? You know, that's a really good question, Scott. I think what I would want them to know is that I understand there's a level of anxiety by not really being able to be with your family or friends over this holiday that uh, historically has been a holiday of gathering and social, you know, uh, togetherness. I think we just need to remind ourselves of those figures that came out today that the that it can be a lot worse than it is and that we are on the right path. I think we're getting reassuring evidence that we are doing the right things. We just need to continue doing it and we need to be patient with it. And I like your suggestions earlier that, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be socially distant. We're just saying be physically distant. So connect with family and friends over the holiday, find ways to engage with them as much as you can virtually. And remember that hope is around the corner. We just have to weather this through a little bit longer. 
Uh, we talked yesterday about the, the testing situation in Ontario, and the Premier talked about that at his last, uh, latest press conference, last press conference, rather, yesterday, and we're waiting for his next one coming up uh, in probably uh, just under 15 minutes or so, uh, and we will go to that live. Uh, obviously, he was greatly disappointed in what had happened with the testing. I guess initially they were waiting for supplies, uh, but then it looked like that had been topped up by the beginning of the week, but we didn't see really any of the testing numbers uh, increase. Uh, he, he didn't certainly want to lay blame on anybody within his staff on that, and I can certainly see him taking the high road in that respect. But now that this testing will be ramped up, what do you project we will see? And I know, again, this is a crystal ball question. What will we see in Ontario as we start to ramp up these tests from 3,000 a day to about 13,000 uh, 13, a day? The hope is that we're able to test every single person who might be infected and that we're able to have the results in a timely manner. I think those are going to be the biggest two things that we need to look forward. And as I stated earlier today, that this is going to be one of the key, key criteria for us to know whether we can get back to normal life. And I think that's where the pressure on the government is right now. Everybody's saying that since that we know that this is a key criteria to get back to normal life, this is where the focus needs to be. Get those tests out there. We should be able to test everybody who has symptoms. The World Health Organization has been reiterating that message that the only way to move forward on this is being able to test everybody who has symptoms. Uh, because as we know that right now, that's not the case. And so that's going to be really, really key. Are we going to see a huge spike in Ontario over the next week just because we've gone from 3,000 roughly to 13,000 a day? I, I, possibly, yes, the answer is possible. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like the, the increase in the numbers, like we said before, it's the number of deaths that we're concerned about more so than right. the number of cases. The assumption here is the majority of us are COVID-19 positive. And it's a matter of us getting tested or not. So the more we test, the more the numbers that we have of people who are positive, the better we are at contact tracing them and isolating them so they don't affect other people. Any way of knowing, I mean, again, we know many situations where people are, are carrying this virus and don't even know it. They're not even showing, they're asymptomatic. They're not showing any of the symptoms and such. Is there any way, I guess, testing will, will, will prove this, but in your assumptions or models or anything, is there any way of assuming how many or what percentage of Ontarians actually have this right now? That's a very difficult question. We don't know that the answer to that is we don't actually. We, we suspect that quite a large number of people do have COVID-19 just based on other countries modeling and seeing what, how it uh, played out in other countries. I, I think it's fair to assume that a big proportion of our population does have COVID-19. And, and uh, the good news from that is that it's the early reports, again, this is not, hasn't been verified, but the early reports are saying people who have gotten COVID-19 have developed some kind of immune response to it. So uh, that's really reassuring. So I think the more numbers we test, the more people we know. And the clinical trial undergoing right now where we're trying to get the blood samples of people who have tested positive to develop a treatment to it is all reassuring. Uh, touch more on that. We, we, we've read about that, that, uh, that those that now have recovered from this are needed as part of, of a study moving forward. Uh, we've heard about plasma from those patients that have recovered. Uh, this is certainly nothing new from what I understand. I, is this plausible? Yeah, it is plausible. And that's how other treatments in the past have been developed. So it's a team of researchers from McMaster University, University of Toronto, University of Montreal, 
who have come together to put forward this massive clinical trial where they're asking anybody who has tested positive for COVID-19 and recovered to donate their blood. And there's a massive urge and appeal for that because, as you know, we can't force people. We're just asking people to come forward and be able to donate their blood and so that we can be able to see how the antibodies in their plasma have been able to respond to the virus and hopefully be able to develop a treatment for it. Yes, it's a very promising trial. Uh, I know there's probably no answer to this question, but I'll throw it out to you anyway. Um, Would it be safe to say that most of the people who have this would not be showing symptoms, or is it only just a small portion that would not be showing symptoms? Most of them would just get sick, and whether it's mild or or severe or what have you. But is is it possible that... Um, the majority of these people that have it will not show symptoms. I think that it's hard to tell at this point. We do know from the evidence that 80% of people that do get it have mild symptoms. So it becomes hard for people. Uh, you know, I get this question often, Scott. Like, I had a little bit of fever. I was a little bit tired. Do you think right. I had COVID-19? And the, the fact that we can't test them, we can never be sure, right? So it's very hard to have a definitive answer on how many people that are actually have mild symptoms or asymptomatic are actually COVID-19 positive unless we test them. And this is why this is such an essential criteria for us to get ahead of this. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member in human and social sciences, health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, thank you so much for all the time and insight. We greatly appreciate this and uh, try to have uh, what <laughs> have, try to have at least some sort of normal weekend. And good luck to you and your family. Thank you, Scott. Same to you and your family. Uh, how do you handle going through all of this self-isolation? Uh, is this a time to be taking on a new goal? Let's bring in Dr. Richard Amaro, registered psychologist. He is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. So uh, is this a time to take on a new goal? I mean, I guess it depends on, on how you handle this sort of stuff. But is this time to, to try to do something new? Well, I think you you mentioned a good point there. You know, it depends on, you know, whether you're where you are in your life, I think, and on the circumstances you're in. You know, for people who want to learn a new language, I think it's great, you know, because perhaps they are at a point in their life that they have that time, or perhaps this has been a long-time goal that they just never got around to do it. But then you have other individuals who are dealing with some serious illness. You have other people who... Uh, had some ambitions, had some goals, and were achieving it up until COVID. And then all of a sudden, now their lives have changed and the routines have changed. They got to take care of kids. They got to address things in their life that they didn't have to before. And so suddenly those goals are, are difficult. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people are assuming because we're working from home that we have all of this extra time. And my wife and I were saying this the other day. It's like we're working harder because you're out of your element. So it takes more concentration. Uh, And plus, you have to deal with everything else that's going on in the house, including with, for me, two kids that are going to school. So uh, it's not like everybody. This isn't a vacation for people. No, you're absolutely right. And I'm in the same boat as you are. It's I find myself actually having to do more work because now i got to deal with some of the administrative things that mm-hmm. I used to outsource to someone else when I was working in an office. But it, the other point here to remember is that it takes time for us to adjust and to adapt, regardless of what routine it is, regardless of what happens in life. It, it takes time and it takes a lot of mental and emotional energy to deal with a big change. You know, when an organization 
is maybe dealing with a merger or perhaps they're dealing with cutbacks and they got to scale back a department and that means you now need to do another job or you need to go somewhere else. That can be a very stressful event for a person. And all they got to do is think about their employment. But here we are at a situation in our lives where we got to think about our job, but then we got to think about our family, we got to think about our house, we got to think about our finances. We got so much more to think about and we probably haven't had enough time to adapt or adjust appropriately. Well said. Uh, advice for those of us heading in, or for us heading into a long weekend, one that is normally spent with lots of people and family and uh, places of worship and such and, and large gatherings. Uh, obviously, that now taken away, and it, it's it's just it's self distancing and, and the reality of COVID nineteen. Any advice for us heading into a long weekend? Yeah, I would say to uh, just focus on the things you do have. You know, this is a time when people are just so busy, so stressful, perhaps they're entertaining for others. So just realize that, you know, this is maybe your time to scale things back and to reconnect with the simplicity of life and just enjoy that. Well said, Dr. Richard Amaral has been with us, registered psychologist. Richard, thanks so much for the time and insight. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.